Listen to this reading as it comes to us from Numbers 25. While Israel was staying at Shittim, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Thus Israel yoked itself to Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and impale them in the sun before the Lord, in order that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you shall kill any of your people who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Just then, one of the Israelites came and brought a Midianite woman into his family, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the Israelites. While they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he got up and left the congregation. Taking a spear in his hand, he went after the Israelite man into the tent and pierced the two of them, the Israelite and the woman, through the belly. So the plague was stopped among the people of Israel. Nevertheless, those that died by the plague were 24,000. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites by manifesting such zeal among them on my behalf that in my jealousy I did not consume the Israelites. Therefore say, I hereby grant him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and for his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite man who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, head of an ancestral house belonging to the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, daughter of Zur, who was head of a clan and an ancestral house in Midian. The Lord said to Moses, harass the Midianites and defeat them, for they have harassed you by the trickery which with they deceived you in the affair of Peor, and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister. She was killed on the day of the plague that resulted from Peor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at the tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling their doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, this text this morning, a very challenging text, um, horrific in many ways, we ask that you, by your spirit, would help us to understand its meaning for us and how we might be a community that inhabits its truth. So meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we worship in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So uh, 
As we begin, just it seems fitting to note that we have been through a very stressful week, uh, this electoral process. Uh, for some, it ended in jubilation, and for others, there is lamentation that still goes on. Uh, so it's a conflicted country and a conflicted moment. And the question for us is really, what does it mean for us to be the church, right, in a moment like this, in a city like ours, in a country like ours, in a world like ours? And I want to share some words from Wes Granberg-Michelson. Now, Wes is a friend of mine. He's the former general secretary of the RCA, our denomination, and he's a member of city classes that we're also a part of. And he wrote a piece this past week uh, on the topic of public virtue as we sort of come into this presidential election season. And he asks this, what if we recognize that our engagement in politics should be rooted in our participation in the Trinitarian flow of God's love, then everything changes. We're no longer guided or constrained by what we think is politically possible, but are compelled by what we know is most real. At the heart of all creation, the mutual love within the Trinity overflows to embrace all of life. We're invited to participate in the transforming power of his love. I love that statement that we are no longer constrained by what we think is politically possible. As we've been looking through the wilderness wandering, the story of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, one of the things that we've noted week after week is just simply this, that a people that are born in the context and raised in the context of systemic and institutional slavery, that they lack imagination for freedom. And so the wilderness wandering is a place in which their imagination is recalibrated, not to the abuses of the past, but toward the realities of God's heaven, the reality of the promised land and the kind of kingdom that God wants, where they might begin to realize that they are compelled by something far more real than abuse. The problem with the culture war that's so rampant in the church and rampant in American culture and maybe even the world is that it tells us that the answer to our future as human beings resides in one side or the other, one human invention or the other, one broken imagination or the other. Rather than in the action of God amidst a world that is torn apart by sides. God has intervened in our world to bring peace with himself, but also to reconcile us to one another. The fruit of the life of Jesus among us is that reconciliation. So as we read this really challenging and maybe even feeling strange text this morning, what is the Spirit saying to the church today in our moment? in our current historical moment, which when you read this text on the surface, it seems to play into many of the things that we fear the most, religious intolerance, over-identification with ethnicity perhaps, uncertainty about cross-cultural marriage, the use of violence to enforce ethnic, cultural, and racial privilege. How do we make sense of this particular text? How does it relate to the place that you and I find ourselves in this morning? a country that is torn apart? How does it relate to a church that if you looked at the church more globally across this country, certainly, that is itself torn apart? How do you relate to the story of this text 
each of us in this room, some of whom were out, some of you were out dancing in the streets yesterday and others perhaps in a space of lamentation. How do you relate to a text like this? So three themes that I'd like to pull out. The themes of idolatry, judgment, and covenant hope. So idolatry. The commentators sort of agree that this is the, the last story, or at least one of them, of the final, this first generation that's come out of, uh, out of Egypt, right? That's who this group is. And they've been dying off in this wilderness journey, right? And the story sort of erupts, the problematic nature of the story erupts when? At Sinai, right, uh, in Exodus 32, while Moses is up on, the, up on the mountain, which if you want to think about what's happening in that scene of receiving the law, what is he receiving except a vision of the possibilities of a new way of living life as human beings in the promised land? They grow impatient. And so they plead that, a, that, that the golden calf would be formed for them to worship so they could celebrate their deliverance. In other words, it's a misplaced worship. It's a false worship that begins to erupt. And the reality that happens throughout the wilderness journey is we just see how that same mentality of leaving God is constantly a part of their lives. And here at Numbers chapter 25, at the end of this generation's life, the narrator is simply saying, not much has changed. The story of idolatry here, as it is told, begins with a story of sexual engagement the women of Mo with the women of Moab and Midian. In chapter 31, we'll learn that the idea that sort of prompted these women coming to the border um, was given by the pagan prophet Balaam. The point was not love or meaningful relation, but it was seduction into the cultural patterns of Moab, the god of Moab, Baal of Peor, a fertility god. So maybe if we hook our wagon to him, our life in the promised land will be different. This is a story not of forbidden love, but of love forsaken, Israel leaving the God who loves them. The sexual embodiment that is described here is a metaphor about their life with God. It's a metaphor for their spiritual adultery that was at play in their lives. Think about the story, if you will, in contrast to the famous Moabitess, Ruth, whose story is written into the Messianic line itself. Ruth says to Naomi after her own husband has died and all of Naomi's sons have died, Ruth says simply, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And what we should understand is that what is happening in Numbers chapter 25 is the opposite of that. It's Israel going after another God, another political hope, another religious hope, another ideology about their common life that is not born of the love that God has shown them in delivering them and sustaining them. Spiritual adultery is a kind of idolatry and it begins to shape the way Israel would live in the future. So what about us? What are your idols? It's so easy to sort of imagine, well, idolatry is a thing of the past. Listen to Luke Timothy Johnson's definition of idolatry. He defines it this way. He says, it is anything, ideas, relationships, possessions, accomplishments, vocation, anything 
political ideologies, political parties, anything that you and I begin to treat as if it were ultimate. That is, as if it were the key to undoing the bitterness and the brokenness and the sorrow of this human life. That's idolatry. What are you tempted to give your love to, your functional, your daily love to? Here, Israel wants a different set of relationships to define their life as a community and a people, their life in this promised world. Idolatry. Second, the theme of judgment is very strong here, and it's certainly unpalatable to all of us, I think, almost certainly. You read this story, and you just are constantly shrinking back, and you feel almost as if we should have sort of given a public service announcement at the very beginning. You know, children don't listen, right? It's like that kind of a moment with the story and its detail here. But I want you to remember this that the graphic scenes of judgment that are depicted across the, the, the Hebrew scripture, the graphic scenes of judgment essentially begin to foreground the death that is already playing out in the background of Israel's life. It's just moved forward. It overtakes them. A few weeks ago, we commented on something that C.S. Lewis observed, and it's just this, right? That there are essentially two kinds of people in the world. There are those that say to God, thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, have it your way or your will be done. In judgment, God says, okay, have it your way, life without me. And in that moment, the death that is playing out in the backside of all of those commitments rushes forward and overtakes them. Leaders here are at the very center of whom those whom God calls to be judged, right? Uh, back in chapter 11, we saw how important leaders are to the people of God and to the community of God's people. Leaders tell the story of God to the people of God in such a way as to sustain faith across the variations of human life. So in moments of joy, we try to tr connect that joy to what? Ultimately to God, not to the event that's happening in the, in the particular moment. And we recognize that if joy is to be sustained in the long haul, it will always be born out of a relationship with God. Or in the places of wilderness and experiences of difficulty and challenge and sorrow, sickness, death, injustice, leaders are meant to tell the story of God in the midst of such a circumstance that we begin to hold on to hope. Here, God says to judge the leaders because they're leading people away from faithfulness to God. Moses doesn't seem to follow through once again, as Chris pointed out in last week's text. Here again, he seems to, to sort of not follow through. He passes things off, whether rightly or wrongly, to the judges, and it isn't even clear if they begin to act. And so all of a sudden, the plague of death that's running in the background of their life always rushes forward and begins to overtake them races into the foreground. Idols don't keep the death that you and I seek to avoid at bay. Not ultimately. Idols, judgment. What about covenant hope? Because we'd like to get to a place of hope and even it feels like a challenging story. It centers here in this particular moment in the life of Phineas. 
He's the grandson of Aaron. He's a priest of Israel. And so here, immediately, the shift of focus, can you notice it? It's moving from the former generation to the next generation. And the question is simply this for that next generation, as they will be the people that will inhabit the promised land. What stories will animate your common life? Will it be the love that God has for you or something else, a foreign power, a foreign love? Aaron, or rather the, the shift here to the next generation on Phineas's story. Zimri, he is the son of a leader of the tribe of Simeon. In other words, he's a prince inside of Israel. He's a future chief, next generation leadership. Here he intends to consummate a relationship with Cosby, who is also a princess of Midianite origin. These are not random people in the story. They're symbolic people. They're representative people. They're persons of influence interior to their respective communities. This is a political and a religious alliance as a way into the promised future. And that's what God judges. Phineas, this next generation priest, does what Moses failed to do. He takes the life of Zimri who is leading Israel away from God. Now, it is a graphic story. It's a hard story. But I want to suggest that one of the things when we stumble into these texts of Scripture that you and I need to do is we need to sort of back off of our initial prejudices and our initial judgments about the text itself and just look, what is the movement? What is being exposed? What is being seen? Because we're told in the New Testament that these stories were given to us for our benefit. And when you back off, I couldn't help but draw a comparison with one of my favorite authors, Flannery O'Connor, who if you remember her work or if you've ever read her short stories, very often have horrific dimensions interior to them as well. And she describes the whole point of that being to draw big pictures for people that are blind and can't see. She deconstructs some of the horrors of her own cultural and historic moment. Stories of racism, stories of religious hypocrisy, stories of moral hypocrisy and superiority within Southern culture of her day in the hope that her readers would begin to see themselves in the story and maybe become open to different possibilities. I can't help but read some of these pictures and stories of judgment and horrific ones as a way for us, an opportunity for us to see the big picture of what God may be calling us to see inside of our own lives at the moment. These stories of judgment invite us to see the deep stories that are operative in our own lives against the backdrop of God's covenantal love and faithfulness. The Lord says that Phineas has turned back to his wrath from the Israelites by manifesting such zeal among them on his behalf. He says, I hereby grant him my covenant of peace because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Spiritual fidelity to God. Now, in order for us to inhabit this story, we have to pull this through the greater Phineas, who is Jesus. He is the ultimate Phineas. He's the ultimate high priest who makes atonement to stop the spread of the plague of death that runs through human cultures and society 
every place. And he does that not with the thrust of a spear toward any one of us who could easily be caught in our own space of spiritual adultery, but by taking the thrust of the spear to himself. And so the author of Hebrews will tell us in chapter four that we've come to a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. In other words, he knows you. He knows that you're dust. He knows your weakness. He knows your spiritual struggle. He knows the places and the moments where you don't maintain faithfulness. And yet he loves you. And he's different from us because he's a priest that didn't sin. In other words, everything about Jesus' life was always abandoned to the love of the Father. He was always a participant in the Trinitarian fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit. Experiencing that love and opening that love up to the world around him. And so the author of Hebrews says, approach this throne of grace boldly that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So four years ago, just following the 2016 election, that Sunday I walked into our worshiping moment to a bunch of downcast faces. In our particular community, in our particular corner of the world, the impossible had happened for so many people. A lot of discouragement. Yesterday, the experience inside of Philadelphia was quite different from my experience in that room. Four years ago, there was dancing in the streets, literally, and in cities across this country. But I wanna suggest this, that the things that I may have said that Sunday are still relevant to the things that I would say this Sunday. And it is that the church is a community of God's people born of his love, and we don't over-identify with any human articulation of hope. We just keep coming back to the hope that is found in Jesus. As we live and inhabit all of these other spaces, of our lives, whether that is as a Republican or as a Democrat or an independent or whatever party you choose to sort of play inside of, we inhabit those spaces as those that are deeply loved by Jesus and it changes your allegiance and it changes the way you inhabit your hope even in those spaces. Let me come back to Wes's comments that I was pointing at earlier that we recognize that our engagement in politics, and I think we could expand that to any other aspect of human life, that these engagements of human ordinary life should be rooted in our participation in the Trinitarian flow of God's love revealed most fully in the life of Jesus himself. Listen to what he says. Jesus's love for enemies, Jesus's nonviolent response to evil, his embrace of the marginalized, his condemnation of self-serving religious hypocrites, his compassion for the poor, his disregard for the boundaries of social exclusion, his advocacy for the economically oppressed, and his certainty that God's reign was breaking into the world all flowed from his complete mutual participation in the Father's love. Jesus didn't merely show the way, he lived completely in the presence and power of God's redeeming and transforming life. None of this fit any of the conventional political alternatives that were available to Jesus inside of Palestine at the time. None of it. 
He wasn't a zealot seeking to violent overthrow of an oppressive empire, although he welcomed a zealot as his disciple. He resisted and undermined the authority of political rule. He did it. He resisted and undermined the authority of political rulers, was crucified the king of the Jews. He refused to identify with religious authorities who were willing to compromise their spiritual convictions to foster their collusion with imperial power. Yet the politics of Jesus presented a clear agenda of radical social and economic transformation in his time as in ours. All of this was rooted in the incarnate participation of Jesus in the love of the Trinity. His life embodied what God's love intended for the world and demonstrated the Spirit's power to transform, heal, and make whole what is broken. When I listen to the news feeds and I look out on our particular cultural moment, that is what the world needs to see. It is the calling, the high calling of the church to anchor its imagination and its life in the life-giving love of Jesus for the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.